open banking is not, it's not immediately obvious to people. So I think it's going to be a marketing effort by the merchants, by the PSPs that have it, by the banks themselves to say this technology is available. Um, and then all the value propositions that come along with it, like the fact that uh, it's almost impossible to have fraud, the transactions are irreversible. Um, there's almost no instance where you can believe that you have a good payment and you don't, because again, you can see into the consumer's bank account to make sure that they have enough money. Um, and it's cheaper than processing through the card schemes for the merchants. It's something that I, I believe will come, um, but I think it will come in, in different regions. And welcome back to another episode of InCheck with Fintech. This week, we are joined by Michael Belota, Head of Digital Goods and Services at Worldline. Worldline is the European leader in digital payments. Their technology provides the trusted infrastructure for millions of people, businesses, and institutions around the world. Powered by over 20,000 employees in more than 50 countries, Worldline provides their clients with sustainable, trusted, and secure solutions across the payment value chain. Michael has over 10 years of experience with a leadership trajectory in fintech spanning e-commerce acquiring, mobile payments, multi-currency mass payouts, and foreign exchange. Enjoy listening. So then, without further ado, Michael, welcome to InCheck with Fintech. Thanks for here. Um, I've been, I, I'm really glad to be here, first of all, and I've been noticing more and more traction for this podcast on on LinkedIn. So um, I'm glad that we that we did this. And, and if I know you, I'm sure it's going to be a good conversation. The only thing I hope is that I can bring some value to your audience. So only time will tell. Yeah, indeed. indeed. Yeah. Well, I'm sure with your following, I'll hopefully get a few more listeners as well after this uh, publication. So very much looking forward to that. Get a bit more traction on the podcast. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to have a conversation with you. You have to talk about kind of the payment trend, right? I have these conversations regularly. Uh, with people, uh, I think last time was with the MD uh, or the CCO of uh, Nuve, Yuval Ziv. Uh, it was really interesting, and I'm curious to hear from you, kind of, uh, yeah, where you see the market today uh, and and where it's where it's going to go. Um, but maybe first and foremost, you are right now the global head of digital goods and services at Worldline Global, right? Or should I say, Worldline Digital Commerce? Yeah, so Worldline Digital Commerce, which is a part of of Worldline, and we can get into kind of the delineation of, of those two if that's interesting for you. That's quite a behemoth, right? Worldline. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so let, let's talk about Worldline. Uh, my my bio is not not nearly as impressive as the behemoth, as you say, uh, that that is Worldline. So Worldline is uh, yeah quite a staple organization within within France. Um, for me, coming from from the U.S., I actually hadn't heard of Worldline before they uh, acquired a company called Ingenico, which was another French company that I worked at prior. Um, but it's a public company, uh, publicly listed, and it's actually, uh, to add to the legacy, it's a spinoff of a real French powerhouse tech company called Atos. So it was sort of incubated within Atos, and then Worldline was spun off ten plus years ago. And one of the one of the main sort of philosophies that Worldline has um, is around M and A. So they've been extremely active in the market, uh, looking for companies that are really on the front line of thought leadership and generating, creating unique solutions within payments. And there's really, there's four divisions of Worldline. 
I can speak about all of them, but I'm only dangerous on two because they're the ones that are super relevant. And the way that I would break it up is um, there's sort of the merchant services side of the business, and then there's the financial services side of the business. And so I'm within the tower of merchant services. And as your audience will know, merchant services is really um, all of the 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 various value add propositions that companies can provide to businesses that sell things. Um, and then within digital commerce, which is really the the house that I that I occupy a small room in as head of digital goods and services, um, we deal with um, primarily uh, digital first or online first businesses. So in a previous iteration of, of our business, it was actually called Global Online, which probably gives your audience a bit of a better understanding. So most of the businesses that we work with are digital natives. So they were born online. And so therefore, um, they are some of the largest, most interesting, most forward-thinking companies within, within e-commerce. And then we break that out into the different verticals. So we have a travel vertical, we have a media vertical, we have an e-retail vertical, um, and I'm, I've been very fortunate and lucky to be leading our digital goods and services vertical since its inception in November of, of 2020. So I just want to give a quick shout out. Within digital goods and services, we, we call ourselves the Lions. So if there are any digital Lions listening, I just want to give a shout out to, uh, to all of you guys and girls. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to be part of your team and, and to interact with you on a daily basis. Love it. Great. Um, and then, so you joined about six years ago, right? Almost exactly six years ago. I think a bit uh, longer than that. I saw June 2016. So then it was Ingenico, which again, to make it even more complex, was a merger of the likes of Ogon, of Ingenico, Global Collect. Maybe I'm forgetting a few logos now. Yeah, there's a few more. But uh, yeah, so it's interesting. I, I think um, in the US, uh, we tend to build companies uh, maybe from the ground up a bit a bit more. And I think a lot of that is because, A, there's a huge market within within the US. I mean, we have, who knows, but at least 350 million people. Um, whereas in, in Europe, the countries are, are quite a bit smaller, like for you in, in the Netherlands. Um, and so M&A is, is a massive part of public organizations within, within Europe. And so Ingenico had the same sort of philosophy as Worldline, had, which is let's find ways to grow through acquisition. So I'll take like 30 seconds to do this. In Genico, people may not know the name, but you've seen their product a lot because between Ingenico and Verifone, those are the two leaders in the, the, the little plastic boxes that you pay with at the store. So the point of sale terminals. Um, and so Ingenico had been manufacturing those terminals since the 80s. And they realized uh, sometime in the early 2000s that brick and mortar commerce was not necessarily going away, but e-commerce was, was really the thing that was showing the most growth. And so they started making acquisitions with names like Global Collect and, and Ogon. So if you look at the lineage of, of where I'm from and where digital commerce and the digital goods and services uh, business that, uh, that I run, it's all from Global Collect. So um, there have been many iterations of the platform and the APIs, but if you go all the way, all the way back, it comes from a small Dutch company that's based in Hoogdorp uh, many, many years ago. Uh, and we built something really, really incredible from, from that lineage. And this way you really became an omni-channel player, as they call it, that's right? right? 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, great. In your role, you deal with merchants, online business on a global scale, right? So maybe it's interesting later on in the show to zoom in on certain regions. But as a whole, right now, we're August 2022. What kind of payment trends do you see uh, going on in the market today? Sure. So um, uh, this is something that I, I always try and work out riffs in terms of like what I believe, like a little elevator pitches uh, so that if you meet someone on the street, not that this ever happens, and they want to talk about <laughs> payments, you kind of you can kind of go through it. So it's like this ever evolving thing. Um, where I'm at with it right now revolves uh, around a few things. Uh, but I would say the main thing that, that I see in the market is around orchestration. And so a lot of people will be familiar with the orchestration layers. I think Spreedly was one of the first movers in the space. And now you have a bunch of new names like uh, Primer is one that's definitely made a splash recently. Uh, and there's many others within, within the space. So that's point number one. Um, but it's not really what I mean. So the, it's more the concept of orchestration. So it's this idea that no one uh, acquiring bank or payment service provider is able to create a, um, a suite of products that will satisfy a mega merchant. So a big tech or a global enterprise company, there's not one sort of plug and play, you know, despite the fact that, that that's sort of where, where we're all trending. And so you do see the orchestration layers, but something that is very relevant for the space where we play, which is again, sort of the top, whatever it is, top 500 merchants globally, most of them doing over 100 million in e-commerce turnover. Um, they're creating their own orchestration. So one of the main things that we're seeing is um, sort of, taking control and going through these massive engineering lifts to create um, their own payment APIs, which other PSPs can then integrate into. So I'm, I'm not technical, I'll probably screw this up, uh, but just to, to create a lay of the land for the audience, normally what happens for a payment service provider like Worldline is we start working with a new customer and from a technical perspective, they integrate into our platform. So we have, uh, we have merchant-facing APIs that they can integrate into. Um, and that's how 99% of our customers are sort of attached to us. That's how their payments come to us. That's how we process them. Um, that's how we give them their reporting and reconciliation and remittances and all of that. Um, but what companies are doing the likes of Google and Apple and Amazon and these household names that everybody knows is they're actually creating their own internal orchestration layer where they have their own payment APIs. And they say, we're so massive and attractive for you to do business with that you can come to us and you can integrate into us. And so it sort of puts the onus on the PSP um, and it creates this really unique ecosystem that they build for themselves where they decide who has the um, who has the suite of products that's interesting for for them, and so that's a huge trend. And it also dovetails with sort of the second thing that I'm seeing in the market, which is um, increased focus on localization. So it used to be um, not necessarily when I joined the Genico 2016. Let's go back to 2010. Um, it was quite sufficient for a global e-commerce player to integrate into one, maybe two of the leading PSPs in the market. 
and say, okay, this is enough for me to um, create an acceptable value proposition to my global consumers. I can have uh, Visa and MasterCard and Diners and Discover globally, and maybe I do PayPal or something like that. And, and that's, that's okay. That's sort of what, what everybody is, is, is expecting. But as the world of uh, mobile payments and real-time bank transfers and things like that become more and more prevalent, um, that's, it's an unacceptable value proposition for consumers because what they're used to is they're used to paying in their local currency with their local payment method and, and all of these things. Um, and so over the last five years, there's been a huge focus from global payment service providers like Worldline to create the most unique local solutions possible in order to cater to, to those customers. So um, on, on the Worldline side, what we focus on is, is what we call geo expansion. So we focus on creating unique, um, let's say unique credit card processing solutions because in almost every market, credit cards are still dominant. There's many where they're not, but at least in the main markets they are. Um, where we create a presence in, in uh, typically we've been focusing on the BRIC countries. So the countries that are expanding most rapidly in terms of year over year trajectory um, of their e-commerce markets, uh, countries like Brazil and Russia and India and China, um, South Korea, for example, another one. Um, so we, we create the ability for these large merchants to go into those uh, countries and those regions with or without a local entity. So we open up the credit card processing and then what comes along with that is all of the local payment methods that are on everybody's phone, which is again, primary. Um, and so that's sort of the second trend that that's become super relevant, which is um, how can you convince these, um, these global merchants that, uh, that this sort of third wave of e-commerce is accessible to them through as few connections as possible. So just to be sure on localization, because I think this, ever since payment has been around, there's been what the, uh, what I think is called payment demographics, right? Every country has their own ways of payment and every payment service provider tried to offer to their merchants for a long time now, making sure that they offer the payments options that are being used the most by that specific uh, demographic. Mm -hmm. This is taking it a step further, I think, right? Uh, localization. Mm -hmm. If you talk about opening up entities in certain markets where I think especially global merchants would need a local entity in order to pay in and pay out. This is taking that localization one step further. Is that right? It is. And so one of the, one of the staples of the solutions that we aim to create is to give some optionality to merchants around the way in which um, their finance, accounting, tax, uh, et cetera, departments operate globally. So if, for various reasons, having a local entity is either imperative or just a preference for our merchants. It's something that we that we can accommodate. But um, more importantly, uh, we really aim to create solutions where that local entity isn't needed because it is quite complex to create a new local entity. You have to you have to have uh, substance within the country. You have to have a location. You have to have all the legal paperwork, the tax documentation, the bank accounts. Uh, you have to have a team of FX experts that work on repatriating the funds and, and all of that. And so um, what we try and do is create solutions, like, for example, what we have um, in South Korea, what we have in Brazil, um, what we have in India, where it's not necessary to take that step. Um, you can get the local card processing, which eliminates things like cross-border fees um, from the card schemes from Visa and MasterCard and, and Diners and Discover. 
um, American Express, and uh, and also get the local payment methods processing in in the the customer's local currency with the apps that are on their phone, um, and be able to process like a true local. And and that's what we see is really resonating with uh, with consumers within those markets. Makes sense. What I'm not hearing, which I think is interesting, if, if, I think. Two years ago, maybe, if I would have asked you the same question, you probably would have mentioned buy now, pay later, which I think is now yeah. a trend for totally different reasons. But I'm also not hearing open banking, for example. Is that something because you think we've kind of passed that point? Or um, is that also a trend? Or how do you look at those things? I mean, I'm just mentioning two, right? But there's a, there's a multitude of that. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's good. Uh, I've actually done quite a bit of media around open banking, so I, I would be remiss to leave it out. I but um, <laughs> I, I thought I thought a lot about um, the structure of, of this conversation, and so I think that even though open banking is here now, it's very much a, a future trend, which is I know what we, we're going to get into next. Um, the reason I say that is because I think it's still quite. Um, it's quite an immature solution, which isn't to say that it's not ready. It's ready. Um, it's 100% ready to go. Um, however, when we look at open banking and the sort of um, the proposition that it, it has, um, what everybody says is that it's going to disintermediate the scheme. So basically make Visa and MasterCard and those networks um, irrelevant. And, and just, just from a definition standpoint, in case anybody's not familiar, um, Open banking is really nothing more than um, than banks opening, as appropriately, mm-hmm. their APIs to the market for uh, various tech organizations to sort of iterate on top of them and create payment solutions based on the ability to co- connect directly to someone's bank account. And perhaps scary uh, to some people that aren't aware of this technology, also see into their bank account. So uh, I would encourage anybody to look up the company Plaid if they're not familiar with this type of technology. Um, And maybe you will realize that your bank information is no longer um, private just to you. Uh, Not to say that anybody can just look into it, but the idea is that if we can create a nearly instant payment method where a merchant can automatically validate if a consumer has enough money in their bank account to substantiate the purchase that they want to make, um, that will help to really sort of grease the groove of of e-commerce. It also makes things a lot more rapid because you're basically going directly from the consumer's bank, taking the funds and then moving it to the merchant's bank. And it happens. It's not instant. Uh, Instant is crypto and we we can talk about that. We should talk about that because how could you have a conversation about payments without talking about crypto and DeFi and all that stuff? Um, but it is, it's, it's something that's coming, but um, there's a guy, Jordan McKee, he, uh, he works at S&P and he's their principal analyst around payments. I talk to him a lot. And he has this phrase, he says, um, uh, open banking is not a build it and they will come type of solution, uh, which is quite interesting. And I think he's right. Um, what, what he means is, like, like, let's say Apple Pay, for example, which became very, very popular during COVID. If you put something on someone's phone that allows them to just hover their phone uh, over a terminal, or when they're checking out, press a button and automatically allow them to pay, that's built and they will come because it's, it's built into the ecosystem and you just use it. Whereas open banking is not, it's not immediately obvious to people. So I think it's going to be a marketing effort by the merchants, by the PSPs that have it, by the banks themselves to say this technology is available. Um, and then all the value propositions that come along with it, like the fact that 
Uh, it's almost impossible to have fraud. The transactions are irreversible. Um, there's almost no instance where you can believe that you have a good payment and you don't, because again, you can see into the consumer's bank account to make sure that they have enough money. Um, and it's cheaper than processing through the card schemes for the merchants. It's something that I, I believe will come, um, but I think it will come in in different regions. So, like, are you familiar with um, with PIX in Brazil? Do you know that? Uh, yes, that I have. Yeah, yeah. So, PIX in Brazil is super interesting because um, it's based on open banking technology, but the ecosystem of payments, particularly as it surrounds the card schemes in Brazil, is much different than, for example, in Europe because it's very, very expensive to process uh, cards, comparatively speaking, um, in, in Brazil. Um, just generally speaking, the, the scheme fees, and the interchange, and all these sort of technical aspects of the payment are, are more expensive there. Um, there's also uh, more people within Brazil and within the Latin American region in general that don't have credit cards, but most of them do have um, a bank account, and they're all sort of gravitating now towards neobanks and things like that. Um, that are that are new to the market, um, and so you see picks becoming extremely uh, well adopted there because of all the things that I mentioned. It's less expensive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and picks has a beautiful um, sort of interface that that they use that's akin to um, many of the the mobile payments that we see trending trending right now. So um, my belief, I, I should look at the numbers again, but I believe it's the most successful open banking product that's been launched um, thus far, and it's made its way into most of the main sort of regional superstar merchants, um, the ones that are uh, staple within Latin America, but aren't, aren't global. They almost all use, use PIX. So PIX is, uh, PIX is, is here now, open banking in Europe is, is coming, um, you know, is shameless plug. It is something that we have uh, within our suite of products at, at Worldline, we believe in it, uh, but I think it's gonna be uh, a number of years before we see um, before we see the true power of of what it has to offer to to customers and to merchants. It sounds like the success of open banking is dependent on collaborative marketing effort and or yes. the markets that it's in. Right, I think for some markets countries it might not work. For some, it works really well, like Brazil, for example. But indeed, it's maybe more of a of a future payment trend. On that note, yeah. what other kind of payment trends do you expect to be there? For more the future, yeah, yeah. So we mentioned uh, uh, the trend that has a thousand names these days: uh, crypto, Web three, metaverse, blockchain, DeFi. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, uh, it's it's not exactly where I play um, in my business life. So we are we are starting a. Um, so mentioned some of the verticals: travel and digital goods and services. Uh, where where I'm at, um, we're starting a whatever you want to call it, all those names, uh, vertical within Worldline as well, where um, we're basically uh, creating, because of the infrastructure that we have, we feel like we're in a prime position to create what a lot of people within that space are calling the on-ramps for crypto. So basically, everybody has money in the fiat world. So everybody had almost have a bank account and credit cards and all these things. Um, at some point, that needs to be converted into a cryptocurrency that sits on a blockchain uh, in order for it to be usable within the metaverse, whatever that may, may mean. Um, so that's on the business side, uh, DGS, we, we touched a little bit uh, digital goods and services, but we are creating our own sort of crypto vertical. But um, from a personal standpoint, I uh, talk about 
this quite a lot, um, both within the business uh, and also um, just friends and whatnot who are, who are super interested in it. So I, I, my, my thesis on, on crypto um, is that it definitely has the, um, the substance to disrupt the entire payments ecosystem. So there's a lot of things that are going on, particularly within the Ethereum blockchain, that are really interesting uh, to um, to dive into in terms of how payments can be disrupted. I think um, the main things to to talk about, just just in general, um, for people who who maybe don't fully understand it, um, is that everything within Web three is based on the blockchain, which we're talking about open banking, disintermediate, disintermediating Visa and MasterCard. But what blockchain technology really does is it disintermediates the entire finance ecosystem, which is why they call it DeFi is decentralized finance. And all that means for anybody that gets confused by the terminology, which I do, um, is that if you have a bank account with like I do all of my, all of my like Bank of America has all of my money except my crypto. Nobody, <laughs> nobody gets to know where that is. Uh, but uh, so when I do a transaction for Bank of America, so let's say World Worldline pays me, um, and so there's a huge value chain of what happens in order for that money to get into my bank account. It goes from a Worldline bank account. It goes into the SWIFT network, which is this conglomerate of banks that have agreements that if you send us money. We won't take any and we'll move it on to the next bank. And it's this very, very complicated system. Um, SWIFT is the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Transfers, I think. Um, super old company, very, very, yeah, very lucrative. Uh, and so that happens and then it gets to, so it goes from Worldline's bank and eventually it makes it to my bank. And then it goes on this ledger, right? And so people and algorithms have to, reconcile that ledger and ultimately the payment makes it into my account. And for the amount of complexity that's involved, it actually is quite seamless. Like the way in which they've built it is pretty impressive. Um, but there's an intermediate, there's many, many, many intermediaries. So it means that it's slow, it's costly, um, and it's very susceptible to breaking because of all of the cogs in, in the machine. DeFi is nothing more than taking all of that stuff away and everything becomes peer to peer. And it all lives on this thing called the blockchain, which is this immutable, unchangeable space that lives on many, many, many servers. Um, nobody can change it. And it's a permanent record of everything that has happened um, within that blockchain. And there's a lot of more technical things that go along with that, which is how, do a, how does a particular block get finalized and all that stuff, which I wouldn't even endeavor to different podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, the, the reality is that that type of technology exists and it can disrupt not only just payments, but everything that we see in finance in terms of loans and crowdfunding and, um, legal contracts, all, all these things. And from a payment standpoint, what the Ethereum blockchain, which is, I think the most interesting one has been working on a lot is how do we increase the TPS, which is transactions per second. Um, how do we basically make our blockchain as efficient as possible so that we can facilitate um, real e-commerce payments? Because up until now, doing peer-to-peer -peer transfer, like if I wanted to send you one, one ETH, it's super fast, it's super easy. The transactions per second don't matter to me because it's just between us. But if I'm a merchant, I need to know that the blockchain has the, the capacity to handle 
the number of transactions that I can put through in a single second. Like if you think about Alibaba and the number of transactions that they process on Singles Day, for example, um, it's 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 a huge number, thousands per per second. And so, you know, the blockchain has to mature uh, to the point where they can handle that. So they're doing some interesting things um, around uh, how the blockchain is validated. There's uh, there's there's concepts like proof of work and proof of stake that can help to um, to kind of facilitate faster TPS and more efficiency within the blockchain. But yeah, so um, all of that to say that clearly um, the thing that has the potential to disrupt payments. Um, the most is digital currencies um, because of all the reasons that, that I mentioned. So um, I think everybody's watching the space. It'll be really interesting to see how, how, how it evolves over time. Is it fair to say that cryptocurrency as a way of payment should be separated from the blockchain as a technology to run payment infrastructure on? Like, are those two separate things? And the success of that are dependent on different things too, or you don't agree? So um, let me say it back to you and, and, and we'll see if, if we have common ground. So basically, are, uh, do, are you asking if I think that the cryptocurrencies like Ethereum and Bitcoin, those technologies should be separated out from the blockchains that they're on and that maybe the, the success of the coin isn't necessarily linked to the blockchain? Is that what you're saying? Or saying something else? So in terms of what's... Why is this a future payment trend and what's the success dependent on? Let's say that there is Bitcoin as a way of payments. So if I owe you money, I pay via Bitcoin. It's separated from, let's say, Worldline using the blockchain as a way to build their payment infrastructure on using the Ethereum blockchain to run that on. Those are two separate things? Not necessarily. So um, the, the, the coin, let's say, um, is nothing more than the native uh, um, form of value within the blockchain. So the, the blockchain itself is is essential. The up, like the upgrading of the blockchain itself is essential for the success of that particular coin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that form of payment is is integrally connected to to that blockchain. And then the more interesting thing, I guess, is that um, a lot of the new coins that are are launched uh, are also launched on the back of, uh, let's say, Ethereum. So there's many, many new coins that are in some way um, dependent on on Ethereum. So like this, I don't know if uh, the audience is familiar, like with, for example, stable coins, which a lot of people are quite interested in now because one of the main detracting uh, sort of concepts around crypto is that all oh, it's so volatile and how as a merchant could you price your uh, goods and services in something that can fluctuate 10, 20% per day? It's, 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 it's quite a difficult proposition. Um, so now there are these, these stable coins. But yeah, so to answer, to answer the question, I think that they are, they are integrally um, linked. And it's, it's interesting because if you look at Ethereum, which is the one that I've been talking about the most, there is a concerted effort. There's, there's actually... Um, there's kind of an organizing founding group that's still around with with Ethereum, and so the, as uh, I don't know exactly how they're organized to be honest, but uh, they probably have blockchain-based contracts that uh, that organize them. I don't really know, but uh, they they have a concerted effort to 
uh, sort of listen to the market to a certain extent and upgrade the blockchain in the direction that's needed in order to sort of facilitate this next wave of, of commerce. Whereas if you look at something like Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin was famously founded by someone called Satoshi Nakamoto, who nobody, nobody knows who that is, apparently. Some people say that they do, but I don't, I don't know if that's true. Uh, and so there's a little bit more. It's it's still the largest uh, blockchain, the 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 cryptocurrency that has the um, it has the, uh, uh, the the largest float. So there's the most sort of capital invested in it. Um, but I think Ethereum, the way that they're organized, is the one that's moving forward. Um, will will be sort of the the payment. Uh, the payment generating engine of choice, if, if, if that makes sense. And, and yeah, the, it's, it's the, the coin and the blockchain, you can't separate those out. So the success of the coin is going hand in hand with the success of the, the blockchain. Makes sense. Yeah. And like you said, it will take a few years before this is probably going to be fully coming to uh, fruition. And, and as a payment trend together with open banking, uh, there's probably many more that you have, but let's take those two as an example. What's, your role, your team's role, Roadline's role in facilitating towards those trends or accelerating those trends actually becoming not a future trend, but a trend of the now, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so the way that I, I think about it is uh, we are like the tip of the spear. So we sort of sit in this really unique space within payments where um, like if I look at the structure of of, of Worldline, um, we we partner with with everybody. So we always are looking at the market to understand like what are the trends that are moving the needle. Where where are consumers starting to gravitate? And also, if we look at future trends, where do we believe consumers will will gravitate? So we sometimes will make bets like around open banking to say we believe that this is going to be. Um, a payment method of the future. Um, and so we're constantly in this feedback loop where we're hearing from the actual sort of um, like the payment method providers. So you mentioned BNPL before. We have integrations to different buy now, pay later uh, companies. And so we hear from them what how many new users they added in a certain month or I guess now how many they've lost. Yeah. Um, and so we, we get the feedback from that side. We also get the feedback from merchants saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm getting more and more requests through our customer service lines about this particular payment method. Is it something that you have? And then it's really our responsibility to go out into the market, make our own de decisions about whether we want to spend the resources to integrate that particular payment method um, and then and then go from there. So, you know, if we use open banking as as an example, um, I mentioned before that I've, I've done a bit of media around open banking. So we do have... Um, I believe it's a, a responsibility that we have to put out good information about a payment method that we believe has the potential to disrupt the, the payment space. And so um, one of the things that we always talk to our business development team about is the best position that you can be in with a, a merchant with whom we don't currently work, but that we want to work is as an educator. Um, so we take that very seriously. We want to make sure that um, our teams are extremely well-versed in some of these new payment methods and so that we can put ourselves in that position and say, um, you know, you, you as a merchant have, you know, X number of customers within this region. We have this new payment method. These are some of the statistics that have been provided to us from the payment method. 
what do you think? And again, it sort of reinforces that feedback loop that we're always going through. Um, and yeah, as, as I guess is human nature, we naturally just gravitate towards the ones where we get the most positive feedback from all of those inlets. Um, and then we move forward from there and that informs our product roadmap and informs our development and, and all of that. So, yeah, I think, um, Worldline plays uh, an integral part in, in, in that ecosystem because um, we, we are that delineation point where without, without uh, you know, a payment service provider, um, merchants don't have the ability to connect to, to their customers. And so, um, yeah, we, again, we, we, we feel empowered by our customers to, to take that role of, of educator um, and the best, the best customers that we have in terms of our ability to help them be successful are the ones that are willing to sit down and whiteboard uh, and storyboard how they could integrate a new payment method and really understand like, is the suite of payment methods that I have at, in my shopping cart, is it sufficient? Is it sufficient globally? Is it sufficient within a certain market? Um, how, do we, how do we scale it up? How do we beat our competitors? Um, yeah, all, all of those things I believe are incumbent upon, upon Worldline to, to, to inform uh, the market, to inform our customers. Um, so yeah, it's super, it's super, super important uh, to play that role. And hopefully we can help to shape the future of payments. It's, it's our tagline. Uh, so hopefully we can do that. It's a bit of a push and pull then, yeah? You need to offer the payment methods in order for consumers to be interested by them whilst you also try and educate them. And then they, they need to actually use them for you to say, okay, we can spend more resources on them and therewith help propel the success of that payment method, payment trends, a payment yeah. infrastructure, whatever you want to call it. Um, cool. that's, that's interesting. Cool, Michael. Last question for me. Is there anything exciting that you're working on right now that you can share um, with the audience from a Worldline perspective? from a team perspective, maybe with a particular client? Um, is there something that is exciting uh, that you got going on right now? Yeah. Yeah. Um, every day is, uh, is a new adventure. So I feel like uh, there's, sure. there's so many things to, to talk about. Um, if I had to narrow it down uh, to one thing, because uh, you know, we've, uh, we've already been talking for quite a while, uh, it's something that I've sort of uh, filtered in throughout the conversation, which is this idea of geo expansion that that we have at, at Worldline. Um, it's super powerful to be able to talk to a merchant about local solutions that reduce the uh, amount of friction for entering a new a new e-commerce market. So, if I'm specific, um, we're totally revamping uh, our sort of payment stack within within the US. Um, I won't mention names of partners, but um, we'll have a, a really unique solution within within the US um, before the end of this year. And then the geo expansion markets that we're working on um, are, are, are super special. So I've mentioned a few of them already. Um, we have unique solutions in South Korea, in India, um, in Brazil. And our ambition is to launch uh, up to three new markets per, per year. And as I mentioned, we just we focus almost exclusively on the markets that are really moving the needle. So the next one in our crosshairs that I think is quite exciting is Turkey. So Turkey is a massive, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but A, it's a massive country and they're super connected. Um, the, the internet adoption rates, um, the payment method adoption rates in, in Turkey are, are super attractive to us and therefore they're attractive to 
um, our merchants because they know that there are um, many, many uh, willing and able new consumers that they would like to tap into in, in that market. So if we can provide them with local card processing and local payment methods, again, it really helps to reduce the amount of friction that is typically experienced by a merchant when they go into, into a new market. So um, yeah, I, I would say to anybody sort of watch, watch this space. Um, we currently are among a few sort of select peers um, that also have a similar sort of ethos but if I project uh, all of the stuff that I'm seeing internally that, that is very exciting, I think two years from now, it will be, you know, unless there's other secret projects going on within, within our, our, our competitors uh, in the basements and whatnot, um, I don't think anyone's going to be able to touch what, what we can do um, in two years from now. Definitely not, not three years from now. So, yeah, watch the space. Um, it's, it's the best thing that, that we can do for, for, for our customers. So I'm really excited about that. That's exciting. Well, maybe we should catch up again. In two years, which I think is also where Worldline's vision is today, right? In 2024, you want to be the global premium play tech player, uh, pay tech player, sorry, uh, in the world. So, uh, makes total sense. Thanks, Michael, for, uh, yeah, sharing your thoughts, hearing a bit more on, uh, yeah, from an expert point of view on, on where you see the market, uh, going. Um, if people want to reach out to you, can they connect with you on LinkedIn? Yeah, of course. Um, if anybody wants to connect with me, LinkedIn is definitely the best place. Um, there's some things about Worldline there as well, and also worldline.com for anything more broadly about uh, what we're doing. Great, Michael. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll chat again for sure on this podcast for in the next uh, two years. Love it. All right, right here. Thanks a lot, man. I hope this was helpful to everybody uh, listening, and uh, it was fun. It was fun. I'm glad we did this. Definitely. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of In Check with Fintech. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the like button and leave us a comment below. We'll be having more industry leaders soon, so don't forget to subscribe as well in order to keep updated with the latest episodes of our podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'd like to leave you with a more serious message from our partner Free a Girl, who are dedicated to fighting child prostitution and impunity all over the world. Hi, I'm Eveline, CEO and founder of Free a Girl. Every day, two million children, especially girls, are being held captive worldwide. They are locked up and exploited in brothels, dance bars, or online, forced into sexual exploitation. Their freedom is taken away, together with their youth, family, and future. We are dedicated to fight sexual exploitation of children by rescuing these girls. Please join us, unlock their freedom and unlock your potential by becoming a business partner. Please visit freegirl.com for more information. Thank you.